Ah, for the um, for the astute listener there, anybody paying attention? Which I expect you weren't, which is fine. Um, that pattern should have ended on the bass drum, and it ended on the left hand. Yeah, you see. Yeah, you see. Well, now the phone is ringing. Got to make sure you, um, you know, you answer the phone to the boss. So, anyway, that's that. That's that all sorted. So, um, yeah, I, um, um, I restarted recording this. I started off, and, and sometimes um, I had a really clear idea idea today what, what I wanted to talk about, and then I just had this thing of um when i started recording i was sort of because i've not been very well so i was a bit ill last week and i feel i feel i feel a bit fuzzy headed and just a little bit kind of tired today and stuff i'm i'm, I'm sort of back to being well i didn't i didn't want to record this uh the weekend which is why it's a bit late apologies for that but um just simply because i didn't want i don't really like recording episodes and, and if i ever had to listen back to them which is highly unlikely. Um, I'd end up sounding like some weirdo, you know. <clears throat> so I decided, I thought, well, um, I can wait till Tuesday evening because um, one of the reasons I'm not answering the phone is my partner, she's away doing some music adjudicating down in Cheltenham Festival, which is where I was last weekend playing jazz festival, where it was part of the festival. And so it's always easier... I normally do Sunday nights and uh, once a month, obviously, and that's kind of a set in stone thing. But um, it's also, I just thought, I'll do it on Tuesday when I'm better. My, my voice is better and uh, and uh, she's away and all that stuff. I've got a quiet evening and um, and then I was just like started talking and I was just like, I can't really focus, can't really kind of get my head around what's going on. And, um, and sometimes I just give up and just stop. I just like say, oh, let's just start again, you know. So I've had that moment; it's already happened, and it does take the winds out of your sail a little bit. It's that um, that feeling of when you know, if you're recording, and um, and you do a really good like take, and then you go into the control room, and the uh, engineer says, "Oh yeah, I'm sorry, we had a bit, of, a bit of a problem there. It's just, it's a bit of a problem," and you're like, "Oh." And that's that thing about, I've talked about this before, about the regrouping thing. You have to kind of reset, you know. You just have to say to yourself, get over it immediately, you know. Some people are very good at that, and some people find that really hard. Um, and I, I've had that before with writing. I've had a thing where I've, I've written, there's a there's a piece of music that I always think about in my head. I don't I don't remember even what it sounds like now, but I I was working on it. I used to spend a lot of time <clears throat> on my computer writing when it, when it was in my early in my mid 20s and it's kind of relevant to the, the the subject of this podcast actually this new trio thing and all that which i'll get onto in a minute but um i used to spend a lot of time writing and i used to spend a lot of time in the middle of the night i used to go out and gig and get back very late a lot of the time a lot of the gigs i used to do were a lot later when i was in my 20s i used to be getting home always around one two three a.m I used to um I used to gig a lot with um 
with a, a band and the bass player Chris Brown. Um, anybody knows Steve Brown, the British, uh, great British jazz drummer. Um, it's uh, Chris is Steve's brother, a very good bass player, Chris, and he used to be a very good friend of mine. Uh, well, he still is. I just haven't seen him for a long time, but he's a top guy, you know. And uh, and me and Chris used to do that thing where we'd like we used to drive to the gig, and. Um, which would be miles away, and we'd do the gig, and then we'd drive home. We'd always be chatting, always chatting, always, always chatting. Great things, you know, it's always great. And then we get back to my, because I didn't drive at the time. This is like when I was in, like 26, 27, 28. I passed my test right at the end of, 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 the, um, of 1998, um, the beginning of 99. Uh, I think that's what it was. Yeah, beginning of '99, the year before the millennium, and so um, it was. Yeah, New Year '99, and uh, anyway, we used to get back to mine. We used to park outside where I lived in Fallowfield, imagine. Then we used to just carry on talking for like an hour and a half, you know. And he had a day job. He worked at Barclays Bank at the time. And he used to have to get up at like, I mean, his wife, they got up at like six. And he was sat in a car with me talking absolute nonsense till 2.30 in the morning, 3 a.m. And because I was living this kind of weird lifestyle at that time, I would then go into my flat and I would turn the computer on and uh, I would start writing. I was always writing music then. I wrote a lot of music. A lot of it was shit. But some of it was all right. And some of it was quite good. Most of it was terrible. Um, but I spent a lot of time writing. And there was this one occasion where I, I spent a whole kind of evening writing this piece of music. And, and, I, and it, I, it was a very quick kind of process. And I got quite far with it. And I really quite liked the sound of a of just a part of it. It had a sound that I really liked. It, there was a kind of chordal idea and a melody idea and the whole thing was it sounded I was really quite happy with it and I hadn't really really paid attention to what it was I just knew what it sounded like at the time anyway the next day I started I was fanning about with my computer copying loads of files from one hard drive to another that was a regular thing at the time I used to I used to do a lot of computer fixing at the time um I was really into building PCs. I used to build them for lots of musicians. Actually, I used to used to come to me. I used to build them because I had a, I had a trade account at this place in Manchester, and so I used to be able to buy the parts really cheap, and I'd charge like seventy quid to basically build a machine uh, for somebody and install it and give it to them. So it'd be like a music computer, you know. And people came to me because I could build them a computer for under two hundred quid, you know, basically at the time or maybe 250 quid I think with a bit more memory but anyway I was always fanning about with hard drives and copying things and getting a, a bigger hard somebody give me a bigger hard drive I had a friend that lived over the road who was always upgrading his stuff he'd come over and go oh do you want this, this new 300 megabyte hard drive at the time that was very large by the way you know and then it was like a gigabyte and then it was two gigabytes you know and and I was copying some stuff around <clears throat> and I copied these files over and I deleted all this stuff and it was all of my music, all of my stuff on Cubase, all of my songs. It was like a disaster and it was gone, you know. Um, and I I couldn't get this stuff back. I, I, had, I had software, I had, I had this quite clever software at the time which was used apparently by... Um, 
security services. Um, probably incriminating myself now by talking about this, but I was quite of in, I was quite interested in some of that stuff at the time. Um, I used to be. I used to. Um, used to i used to have this kind of site thing which was like a sharing platform and i used to like have lots of music software and stuff on there that was just there and if people logged on they could you know they could um borrow it so to speak and um in order to borrow things people had to upload something and um and there was like an upload to download ratio thing. So, and at the time we were talking about, I, I was on, I was very early to the ADSL thing. Um, but this was before then. This was actually when I was on a modem and it was terribly, terribly slow. Um, but my friend over the road, he had, he, they had an IDSN line. He, he had quite a posh thing to, to, and that was actually quite good for the upload because the lines were the same speed. You know, the down and the up was the same. Not like these days where the down's very quick and the up is rubbish still. But um, I, I used to get all manner of weird things. People used to upload these these kind of weird software, and one was this fantastic undelete software, which was apparently used by, you know, um, FBI and um, MI5 and stuff. So it would like you could run it on a hard drive that had been um, that had not only been formatted but had been um, I'm trying to remember what the lower process of that. There used to be two processes of. Of um, when you set a hard drive up, when you when you can create a whole new file allocation table, which is pre-format. Um, the only time it couldn't get things back was when you did um, like level three, two or three uh, overwrite with um, you know, but with noughts and ones or whatever, however that works. Oh. Sorry, I'm trying to finish this cup of coffee that I I also made. I didn't want to waste. Uh, anyway. Blah blah blah. This is this is a this is an awful introduction to this podcast. This is a terrible story. I mean, I've been going for ten minutes now, and I haven't actually said anything of any worth. Um, but anyway, I had this piece of music, and it was gone, and it's and I still think about it now, and it's one of those things where it was I it was genuinely something that was had a vibe, and it's gone. You know, I still think now. I wonder what that piece of music was. You know. It's still a memory of a traumatic memory. And it's like that with the takes, isn't it? When you're in the studio and somebody doesn't record it or something goes wrong or there's a digital glitch or something. Um, it's, you know, when you're just losing something and, and you, you, you add it and then it's gone and you've got to start again. Or if, you, or if you're doing something on a computer and the computer goes weird and you lose it and, you, and you're like, you've got to start all over again, you know. And it's that energy of that kind of getting back into the zone of having that initial enthusiastic energy and um i read this steve luke of the book recently called the gospel according to luke i think i've mentioned on this podcast but um there's a great section in that where he talks about the first take thing he's a great believer in the first take and i've gone through years and different you know years and years of different thoughts on this because i've had lots of people with lots of opinions and the you know the the Beatles thing, the George Harrison thing was was doing thirty, forty, fifty takes. You you get you try and get back to the um, the thing of the initial energy. You put you it's like practicing something. You get so good at it that you end up it becomes like a something that's inherently got muscle memory. But you can then revisit the spirit of it with much more control and much more learning. 
and so you can have that you can have that um that energy of the first take but with much more precision um and I, I just think sometimes the first take is the best thing and sometimes the first take isn't the best thing you know uh, a really good guitarist i've worked with and he's, and he's interviewed twice on this podcast Stuart mccallum he he's recorded a few things for me in the past and there was one piece particularly which um was on um an album that i made quite a long time ago and it was a a ballad piece called um from the first time and it's like in two sections it has this piano thing which which richard which richard weatherall can't say that which richard weatherall recorded for me um in fact he transcribed uh my i wrote it as it was an improvisation it was a string thing and it just had four sections with these kind of string chords and a little kind of melody and he sort of transcribed it and turned it into like a solo piano piece. So if you go on Bandcamp, Dave Walsh, find Dave Walsh um, on Bandcamp if you fancy having a listen to that. It's on there. On, there's an album. The album's called Storyboard. There's about about ten tracks on that album, and that's been that track has been like the the favourite on that album of most people have listened to that record. Actually, they, they it's funny because it has no drums on it. it. The only the only way it features me is uh, the writing. And the uh, all of the sounds and the strings and all of the all all the atmospherics, except for Stuart's and and Ollie Collins's vector bass as well, but Stuart's guitar playing, uh, and of course Richard's beautiful beautiful piano playing. It's I mean the main thing of it is Richard's piano playing, and then there's just these string chords. But there's some interesting sort of atmospherics on there which make it a bit quirky, a bit different. Um, but Stuart, I remember recording that and uh, and. We did a take, and I was doing my usual, yeah, that's great, beautiful, let's do another one now. And he was like, you're not going to get anything better than that, you know. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but, you know. And he was like, no, I'm just, you know, I, that's it. And he was right, you know. It was because he just played along to this thing. Um, and it's when you listen to it, the, the, the placement and the pacing of the way that he... Um, the the very kind of last phrase he does this thing where he's going he's it's like a it's just on a on a one tonality on a on a pedal and he's going down he's like bends up and he comes down to the to the third of the scale onto the you know onto the, uh, resolves onto the third and what people don't realize oh sorry i'm hitting the microphone what people don't realize when they listen to it and nobody would ever realize that because you know no one's thinking about this thing it's just about what you're hearing but you know, he he'd never listened to it before. He played along to this thing that I had, and it was a certain length of time, and then it stops. If you listen to the thing, it stops, and then and then the you hear this sound of the street again, and there's these voices, and it, it fades out. Um, and he kind of got that pace right, you know. And it's things like that where I'm kind of with him and with Lukather and, and other people that I've met where you can't really recreate that unless you've got the George Harrison thing. You've got loads and loads and loads of time. You know, if you have loads of time, then you, you know, you do the tears for fear thing, the, the Roland Lazabal thing and, and what they did, they, you know, they'd spend forever recording a, a, a track, you know, 
because they were trying to find the truth they were trying to find the sound they were trying to find that thing in the music you know so um anyway god that was a, that was one hell of an introduction um so i yeah i've restarted recording this and the now i'm thinking back to the um to the restarting of this podcast hilariously the the uh the thing i originally recorded was far more succinct than this this is a complete and utter shambles um but anyway you know there's some interesting stories there a little bit of reminiscing um but this is about my new trio and it's so things have been kind of happening in the last few weeks and um so i kind of wanted to talk about that today uh, the last episode was, you know, it was a really nice episode for me. It was nice, nice to kind of have reconnected with the Istanbul brand and all that stuff, which is great. And with Barry Race and BR Distribution, and um, that's um, that's been uh, it's been a really great thing for me to have um, to to be back on kind of within that family and make a thing of that. So, um, so it's been a really positive. A few weeks with the, on the drum side of things, um, really, 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 really nice. But then you, you know, then the reality comes of of getting a new project off the, off the ground. And I just wanted to sort of talk a bit about that today, um, and just to mention as well at the top of this, I, I'm trying to remember each time I come on. It's all very boring. And sorry, and um, and I, it's actually very hard to find. I don't know how you find it, but I do have a Patreon account. Um, there's only two tiers on there and and it's you know it's whatever but I, even even when you search for it i don't it's not very easy to find um i i sort of did it i was because i don't get any kind of interest in it so i was thinking i wonder if you know there's an issue with it and i tried to search for it i couldn't really find it so um yeah anyway i'm mentioning it but don't waste your time i wouldn't waste mine um but if you do feel inclined <coughs> excuse me if you do feel inclined, then um, good luck finding it. I, I couldn't. So I mean, I can find it because I can log into it. But if I try and search for it on Google, it's a bit weird. Drums in the shed, you know. It's like there's not much around with drums in the shed. There isn't anything, actually, which is one of the reasons why. I mean, the drums in the shed is a real thing because I'm sat in my drum shed now and it's a real vibe. Um, but I've also I have got the website, which is nothing on it. It's not, it's not a website yet. It will be this year. And uh, Dave Walsh drummer, and um, but the the Patreon thing, yeah, it's weird. I don't really understand how the search thing works with that. Um, I mean, maybe it's just a Google thing because you know the way Google works is when you have any when you get any kind of traffic, then you know things get found, don't they? And uh, there is a Patreon link through the Podomatic page, so the Dave the Dave Walsh podcast, the Drums in the Shed thing on Podomatic, which is the platform I host my. Um, well, I still host. I might not be from from this month. I'm gonna wait and wait and see. Trying to do a bit of research on about whether we can move my um, my podcast to a different platform. Um, not that I'm unhappy with Podomatic. I like, really like Podomatic, but it it costs me money. And I don't make any money out of this, so um, it's it's not that expensive. They do me a fantastic deal. I've had two years of this fantastic um, discount, which is which basically is like a four hundred and fifty percent discount, um, and you get that 
by using a promo code um, it's called Pro Broadcaster or something but it, it basically turns from the £599 a year it means you can have as much bandwidth and as much space as you want and the space is the problem you know when you get into this thing and you start uploading new episodes you're very thinking about doing a podcast people just to think about this because I didn't think about it I chose the Podomatic platform because I listened to the Paul Motian podcast which is great and then it was free to join it. And then I did my first two episodes. I recorded them on the platform. If you listen to those episodes, they sound pretty bad. But they, I recorded them on my web browser. It was just trying it out, really. And then I, and then I, got, then I got into setting a proper microphone up. But the thing that you don't realize, and, don't, and, and I record my things in MP3. Sorry, I record them into Logic, but I saved them as MP3. And I saved them as quite a low... Yeah, 192 kilobits you know not a very high quality because i don't you know it's just spoken word isn't it? it doesn't need to be that high quality and and they're long they're an hour normally about an hour long my podcasts uh, this one's going to be about four and a half hours long today so i haven't even begun talking about what i'm talking about but um you know when you start doing when you do an hour podcast then you save it you know it's um it's 100 megabytes or whatever because 10 megabytes uh, sorry 10 minutes at WAF is 100 megabytes so one hour um, uh, mp3 ends up being around 100 megabytes not exactly but it's you know you start to get into and then you go oh i've got i've got two gigabytes of room with my cheap podcast thing and then you go oh i'm going to do a monthly episode and i was doing bi-monthly or twice weekly whatever the thing is once every two weeks which is your set like that. Uh, originally, wasn't I? That was what I was doing earlier on. I was doing two a month. So you like very, very quickly. And then I did the Sebastian de Crom and Stuart McCallum, two interviews, and, and uh, um, Christian Alderson and, and Richard Cass, etc. those interviews, and, you know, Elliot Henshaw. And they're really long because they're long conversations. I'm still planning to do two or three in the pipeline. Uh, it's just proving very hard to organise them and uh, mainly down mostly in fact completely down to me um i'm hoping to get one done this summer but i'll tell you about that in a bit uh one which i've been trying to do for a couple of years but um you just suddenly realize you're going to run out of room so then you have to kind of spend more money you know and they've got you and then you're in and then you've got your rss feed so this is the thing about the um the, the search thing I, what i noticed was when i put first put my podcast on through the rss it went straight to apple and Spotify, and then I um, and then Podomatic um, started giving me lots of other options. One was Google Podcasts, and it took about three months um, for Google Podcasts to pick it up. You know, even as a thing, and to be able to search for it, and that's just because people search for it. You know, it kind of without one, you know, you don't get the other. And I'm just imagine that it's very very hard to find my Patreon page because no one searches for it ever. You know, so. If you do fancy that, maybe go to my page on the Podomatic site. You can listen to the pod, this podcast on that site, by the way. It's, it's, there's a player on there. And uh, there is a link on there if you fancy that. Um, it's like £3 a month or something, which would help me out a little bit, which would be amazing. And then the other thing to mention was just my um, longtime friend and partner of this um, podcast, which I didn't mention properly for a long time johnny roadhouse music in manchester which is um, where i buy my drumsticks and other things um 
um, which is where I will be going this Friday, hopefully, to see my friend Lee Mullen and um, get some drumsticks, which is what I need to do. As I've got to realise a pair I was practising with today were both warped. Both sticks warped. I could feel them slightly banana-y. It's not a great feeling, is it? That feeling of banananess or bananalessness. Is that a word? Probably not. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So that's that. So the trio thing. So I've got a new trio, everybody. Very exciting, called Trio JDM. Um, and yes, for the um, the car-minded amongst you, you will see the link. Um, but the J, D and M is in relation to three people. The J is Jamie Taylor, a great guitarist, good friend of mine. Um, the D is me. Hello, my name is Dave Walsh. And um, the M is a great organist called Martin Longhorn. And we all like cars. So when I put this trio together, I asked, uh, and they've been wanting to do something together for a while, and I, I was asking them if they wanted to. Before Christmas, I said to Jamie, I want to do a proper jazz swingy thing, which I've not done for a long time. Because um, I'll talk about that in a minute. It's an interesting dynamic at the moment going on in the world of British jazz. I don't want to get too political or controversial, but I just do have some thoughts. Um, and uh, I want, yeah, been wanting to do some of that for a while. And then I did, I did a couple of gigs with Martin and I just had this kind of this sort of good positive feeling in the in the swing and the time feels it's like i want to do something with and that feel thing goes into all styles of music it's not just about playing you know swing and walking bass and that when you're playing straight eights music or ballads it's the same feeling you know but i always feel my most connection with musicians through that style of music you know um and this is something to think about you know, when, when people connect musically, um, you may be playing styles of music which are not your kind of, uh, the thing you're known for, you know. You know, people people think of me as a kind of fusion-y, jazz fusion-y kind of drummer, you know. And the word jazz is in that, but there's a fusion-y thing as well. And um, and I, I describe myself as sometimes I'm from I'm from a rock background, you know that's that's my background. But I have a in the genes is a jazz thing, regardless of the fact that I'm from Salford and I'm, and, I, and I am who I am. There's a jazz thing in the genes because it's it's definitely a genetic thing from from a family connection in that music. There's a love of that music that goes back for a long time, long before I was here. So I kind of believe that there's something in that, you know, whether you do or not, that's fine. That's your opinion. But um, for me, I think, you know, there's nature and then, then there is essentially nurture, which is why we practice and why we learn things and practice. But um, I think some of us do have a, um, a natural gift or kind of affinity, <clears throat> excuse me, to, um, you know, to play an instrument or do something you know, kind of musically. So anyway, wanting to, you know, I've, I've, I've played jazz, music based around jazz for a long time. I'm thought of as a drummer within that kind of thing. But I actually do play lots of other styles of music. But one of the things that, that I was saying that, you know, I think we tend to connect as musicians through a core thing, whether we play other styles of music or not. You know, if we play funk stuff or whatever if there's a kind of you know when i play with funk musicians i don't feel so much of a connection when they're when they're genuine funk musician which i'm not 
and you know they know I'm a fraud and that's you know and that's right because I I don't listen to that music like I've listened to um <clears throat> a lot of jazz and a lot of um what I would call um Americana music or or music that's got a gospel feel or or uh, music that's kind of folk based you know which is mainly the music I've listened to and uh, lots and lots of jazz trio. I'm I'm a big lover of the trio thing, the trilogy thing, the three, number three, and uh, the possibility of three, which is, you know, um, just that the, the kind of the potential of the number of things of of the sum of that parts is it's. Um, because there's so much going on in music. If you know, if you play on your own, there's a lot going on. If you play with somebody else, the multiplications are huge. And then if you start bringing more and more people into that, and uh, and I think one of the reasons why I used to enjoy doing lots of vocal gigs was because I used to play in very good trios with a vocalist. Now I'm not saying the vocalist wasn't part of the band, there wasn't the quartet. They 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 were, but it's just that when the song when the song is sung, there's there's two things that are going to happen you know one is the song's going to finish because there's no solos or there's going to be improvisation and a lot of the time most of the the vocalists that i've worked with were actually would improvise you know as well so so the, the feeling was more of a quartet thing but like when you play with a saxophone player or a vocalist or with a trumpet player or whatever, they, when they sit out, the three remaining people that have been playing in the music all the time, and it's the same when it's guitar, bass and drums or piano, bass and drums, those three are left to play together. And that's why that's kind of what I like about the trio thing, you see, because it's that, there's that omnipresent thing. I'm not talking about all the time, but as a general thing, you know, there's an omni thing about the kind of collective energy and direction and... Uh, and the uh, the kind of business end of what of what trio players do, you know, and when when trio players don't have that next other element to deal with, <clears throat> you know, no vocalist or sax or, or trumpet or whatever there is, then um, it feels like there's a lot of energy unleashed to me with the right people, you know. So that was why I wanted to get this thing together, and so we had our first. Uh, we did some recording a few weeks ago. Um, I can't remember where I mentioned that in the last podcast. Probably did. Um, and that was just to get some promotional stuff together. And so, um, and and then we did our first kind of gig in inverted commas last week. And we had quite a lot of stuff. In fact, we didn't get through all the tunes that we had, which was great, you know. So, um, well, we know a lot of music anyway, but we're trying to make this thing a specific thing and play some original music and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, but just just to kind of get into the actual the whole point of this thing was to talk about the kind of processes really of um if you're if you're a kind of older listener like me or maybe even older then you probably had your own band um now if you haven't had your own band before um all i can say is it's a nightmare it's a great joy, but it's a nightmare. And I'm I was never very good at it. So I used to have a band. In fact, if you if you go on if you go and find uh, the Dave Walsh Bandcamp page, I'm not trying to make you buy anything on my Bandcamp page, by the way. But they're on there. This is an album called Storyboard, and that was <clears throat> loosely based around a band I used to have, um, and that came out of a, another band, which was a collective. It wasn't anybody's band. It was a band that 
everybody wrote for um, called Lyrica, which was a really nice project. And we used to rehearse every week, and it was a really nice social thing. And it was um, with, uh, at the time and still, three uh, really good friends of mine, a great bass player called Mike, Mike Isaac, who I don't see much of Mike anymore. <clears throat> um, he's actually changed his name to Michael Bolton, actually. And he lives back down um, in kind of... Um, City way, Ivy Bridge down there. That's where he's kind of from. Anyway, he lived in Manchester for years and years and years. And Mike was somebody that I kind of got to know, and he's a fantastic uh, electric bass player and very, very kind of um, just very into kind of Jacko and fusion and weather reporting stuff. But very musical guy, very you know, wrote music and stuff. And uh, so Mike was in the band. And then, but the, the band actually came about from a great friendship, which I still have with a guy called Pete Hughes. And me and Pete have been kind of kindred spirits musically for a long, long time, since the early 90s. Um, and uh, Pete had made this album, a really nice album with a band called Sadaje, which is a kind of Brazilian word, for, which is about, it's the, it's, it's a word that's the trying to depict the feeling of the blues, but it's not. It doesn't mean the blues, but it's about the feeling of the, what the blues is in Brazilian, in Portuguese. Sorry, the saudade. I don't think I'm probably saying that right, but um, and I always had this kind of don't know this kind of connection or feeling or enjoyment of the Brazilian music and the feel of Brazilian music and the groove of Brazilian music. It's always been something that I, I was very appealing and kind of I was drawn to. No idea why, but, you know, just because it's mega. Um, there's nothing else to kind of consider in that. So um, when me and Pete met, which was in 93, um, we were in this pop band together. We, we came quite clear. In that band, there was a load of people that, this story I've told before way, way back in an early episode. These are all great people at all. I still know quite a lot of them now. And, um, you know, Neil Fairclough, who played bass in that band, he's, he plays in Queen now. He plays with Brian May. You know, f phenomenal musician, Neil. Fantastic singer as well. And great musician and writer, but he's an absolutely brilliant bass player. And uh, he ended up, he, he, he was, works with this guy called Elio Pace, who... Um, did some stuff with Brian May, and then Brian May asked him to join Queen. You know, so he's he just he's in Queen now, and and so he was in that band. He's just these are great people, and uh, and Pete was in that band. A guy called Dave uh, Baldwin, who was a fantastic keyboard player, to do a lot of gigs with Dave, and he was a really good friend of mine. But he moved to London a long time ago. We kind of lost touch. Um, and uh, a great singer called Dave Bailey, who I was trying to get to sing one of my songs, but that never kind of worked out. Dave's a very busy plumber. <laughs> he's, um, you know people trades people are just busy people it's very very hard to get you know when they've got that life going on it's very hard to commit to the music thing especially when you've got someone like me who's you know a bit kind of like with vocal thing i like to you know it's the right voice and it's about getting the takes and comping and stuff and it's you know it's a lot of um it's a lot of time so, um, but yeah, he was in that band. The guy called Wayne Edwards, who's a great guitarist and producer, who's worked with all sorts of people, worked with Lee Mullen, a friend of mine. Uh, the guy called Simon Bentle was in that band. He was a great percussionist who was in, um, do you remember that that tune? I got the key, I got the secret. Can't remember the name of that band. He was in that band anyway. Um, anyway, yeah, it was a very good. It was a very good band, is what I'm trying to say. And and all those people I still know now in some way. Uh, probably haven't seen Simon Bentle actually for a long time. He kind of disappeared into a different scene when he got that gig actually. But um, 
everybody else I've definitely seen or spoke to in in the last ten years. And um, and Pete, I see regularly. Pete, I made this album, the the Raven Conspiracy, Ben Walker's The Raven Conspiracy. Pete was part of that project, which is a recent project I've just finished, helped kind of produce and did a lot of, a lot of the string writing and backing vocals and things on that project. Ben Walker, fantastic uh, songwriter and amazing musician. And Ben was in Sodaje. <laughs> so this is the link. Sorry, it's all very tenuous. Uh, keep up, keep up. It's the nightmare. I know it is. Sorry about that. So this band Sodaje had these great players in it Mike Isaac was in it with, with Pete Ben Walker was playing sax and stuff and he's great really good sax player great sounds like Wayne uh, Shorter soprano player and the drummer was the phenomenal Mikey Wilson who I've talked about before and Mikey is just there's nobody like Mikey there's nobody anywhere in the world I've met like Mikey still nobody in my 52 years on this planet so far uh, Manchester's so blessed, you know. Uh, we don't, we don't really. Well, the people that do know, know. But the people, we don't. These people don't get the. Um, they don't get what they deserve in my book. You know, he's world class. He's in another stratosphere, solar system, if that's possible. You know, and um, it's just you know because because a lot of it's geographical and things. But the, the things that Mikey's been involved in and and the, this bizarre phenomenal ears and way of assimilating something it's um it's incredible but anyway he was in that band so i was very very jealous because the music was beautiful really up my street and it was all kind of pete's music and anyway i'd written a couple of tunes and me and pete um we we used to sort of do a couple of bits and gigs and I, and I went playing this cassette in the car and we had this kind of moment where we were like oh we're writing kind of Similar music. Now, the thing I will say here straight away is Pete is a very, very good piano player. Very, very good. Very, very good writer. My music doesn't in any way have the, that level of sophistication. I mean, it's like I couldn't even... Pete's got this great way of uh, writing music, a bit like Mike Walker, actually, a phenomenal uh, guitarist uh, from uh, from this part of the world. Uh, Manchester, Salford-based kind of, uh, well, born in Salford, um, but lives up sort of not far from me, actually, kind of in Lancashire. Um, but Mike has this way of writing tunes where harmonically it's pretty, pretty kind of complex, but it just sounds like, it sounds like the most beautiful, simple, melodic, listenable musical thing in the world you know doesn't sound in any way like really and pete's got his same thing um just in the way that they write i remember once trying to work out one of pete's tunes i sort of sat at the piano and i was like i was just so lost so quickly because i was completely out of my depth in in relation to really hearing where you know where the composition was going harmonically but it just sounded like it was all in one key and it wasn't you know um and Pat Metheny, you know, a lot of those Pat Metheny tunes, there's a lot of that going on. Things like you'll get the tune will come back, go for a whole section, the tune will come back, and it'll be the same tune, but just in a different key because because they weren't trying to make it come home to the to the home key, in inverted commas. And I was having to get out of this way of writing, you know. I, I'd been taught to write. I studied classical music. That was how I learnt harmony. I didn't learn writing 
from a jazz place. I learned it from a kind of um, the the functional function of harmony from a, a very rules based system. I was very very into the Bach chorale thing when I was at school. I, I used to I, did, I loved the sound of that thing. I love that kind of writing. I still kind of still feel like stuff I'm writing lives a little bit in that world in a way. Um, I'm a diatonic kind of person, really. You know, a lot of the music I listen to outside jazz is is diatonic, and I'm not ashamed to say I quite I like quite a lot of diatonic pop music that's got three two chords, you know, and that's got two chords for the chord. You know, the the verse and the chorus are the same two chords. You know, I think there's a great art in that. I think it's a very underestimated thing. Uh, it's a, a a way of through production and groove. You know, not in any particular order of those, by the way, but just through that thing of of having a great groove in something and then and then, you know, and then sort of um, dressing the music <clears throat> with a with a production ear, uh, making very simple things sound sophisticated. Uh, my 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 feeling with that is it's um, it's a great art form, you know, and it's something that I've got closer and closer to like the, like the stuff i've been writing recently is closer to that than it's ever been um because i really like you know don't really know what i'm doing and and the thing i need to do and it's the same with my drumming in some ways is to make things simpler you know but um that was a that was a kind of really great project uh, that they had going and then me and Pete decided to put this band together and so Mike kind of migrated into the band Mikey was busy doing a lot of he, he was always doing these pop gigs and very busy things and Ben was originally going to join that band and then something there was something happened at that time uh, with Ben I think something happened with his family they had a house in South Manchester and he had to sell a house or something and move and there was a whole thing anyway there was somebody else that Pete knew called Lara James great sax player and um, and Lara was very into the same kind of music we were into, particularly the kind of Wyndham Hill, Paul McCandless kind of music. And so she joined that project and she wrote for that project. And so we had this band for quite a few years. We used to rehearse every week and it was great. And then out of that band, um, Lara went off and did an, her own band um, with, uh, and Stuart McCallum was in that band actually, and Dave Tompkins and uh, Andy Hay, I think the drummer Andy Hay was in that band. Oh, was it Sophie Hastings? Can't remember. Anyway, she went off and did her own thing because she was writing a slightly different kind of, um, kind of what I would call chamber jazz. It was a slightly different kind of music and it needed a double bass really. Uh, I think some of the, her music and the electric bass <clears throat> thing didn't quite, and and to, and a lot of the time, a lot of the thing I was hearing more was in some of my stuff was was double bass, but not always because I'm a, I'm a I'm a great lover of both. You know, there's a time and a place for both a place for both those things, and and you know, lots of my favourite bass players play both instruments. You know, so. Um, but anyway, that band became became my band. For some weird reason, um, I kind of took it over and it became a bigger band. There was seven of us at one time. This was about 2003 now. And I just found it very, very hard to really... Uh, it was one of those things where it was massively overambitious, of course. Um, true to my um, unrealistic kind of goals of anything. Um, and it was... The music was... Um, had a sound and it was very listenable music. P music, it was music people liked when they heard it, 
But getting the band together properly and getting everyone to have the time to learn the music and to get it to sort of sound properly, the only time I could really get anywhere near it, and this was not with the drum sound at the time, but this was with some of the production-y things and the, and the sort of the, the atmospheres, I always call it, of the music. It was on when I was working on my computer, you know. So everything felt more and more to me like I, could, I was only really ever in control of it when I was kind of sat, you know, behind the computer and I was spending hours on Cubase recording, you know, strings and doing this, that and the other. And it and it and eventually the band sort of went through various different Simon Willis Croft was played sax in it for a while as Duran Duran's sax player now. Um Simon was brilliant in that band. But then Simon went off to London with Elliot Henshaw. They moved to London together. So that was the end of Simon. Rod Mason came in for a while, but I was in Rod's band. It made it very hard to get gigs on the scene, which is something I'll talk about in a minute. You've got to be careful about. <clears throat> and then the band kind of got smaller. Stuart kind of started fronting it a bit more because Stuart was in the band and Pete and me, the guy called Ollie Collins playing bass. Lee was playing percussion, Mullen. And, um, and... And it had Richard Weatherall on second keyboards at one point, which is you know why Richard was involved in that recording because uh, he played that piano thing for me. We, was, we did a lot of gigs together at the time as well. And I asked him to come in and do kind of second keyboards, and there was one gig we did at Manchester Jazz Festival 2003, which was the most the most successful thing that we ever did really. And um, the whole 2003 thing for me is what I would call the the missed opportunity in, in life where two things I messed up with massively. One was we did this gig at uh, Manchester Jazz Festival 2003 and I'd done a lot of gigs. I was doing a lot of gigs at the festival uh, at that time, year on, year out. In fact, I was kind of, there was, a, there was an article, there was a, sorry, there was an open letter written to City Life Manchester and we don't know who it's written by. We have ideas, but um, anyway, it doesn't matter because they're entitled to their opinion. But there was the letter was was written as an open complaint, and it, it, under the guise of the same old faces dominating the the jazz festival, um, whatever. And um, and sadly, my name was mentioned amongst John Thorne. John Ellis was um, particularly. Um, was particularly singled out and john's like one of the icons of manchester music i mean he's just you know but anyway john was doing a lot of one year he did nine gigs which is quite a lot and it was you know when the festival was maybe growing and and you know the programming was kind of um done in a different way and 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 now you know things are very different obviously but john thorne was was singled out um and anyway you know but i was i was involved in lots of projects people were asking me to play in lots of different projects and they were getting they were getting gigs at the festival because you know we all live in manchester and we support the music manchester music scene and and um and i still try to but i'm not really don't really feel that involved really in it very more apart from the, the link with matt and freds and and some obviously musicians but um working in leeds and living in yorkshire for a while and then coming back to live over here uh, people don't I think people don't quite know where I am anymore and whether I really gig. And that's going to kind of change this year because uh, a lot of you know, listen, some of you don't know, my partner's moving away to Kuwait in um, September. She's got a job over there, which is a full-time job. And um, we're going to be 
sort of living apart for a bit for maybe a year on and off not 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 for the whole year just um, for a couple of months or so at a time and we're kind of used to it because that's what things were like before covid a bit anyway and it's an opportunity for her which is great and uh, and one of the decisions i made because we made this decision about her taking this job was that i was going to play more because you know basically um it's having stuff to do isn't it you know and i'm um I used to do a lot more gigging when I was uh, when I didn't have my job and when I was single, you know, and, and, and single musicians, you know, we know what it's like. It tends to be like that. You fill your time with slapping about, don't you? So I've got a full-time job, so it's not going to be that easy, but it, uh, my home life is going to be a lot quieter. So but at that time, I was involved in a lot of projects and I was really part of the Manchester scene, very kind of established within that scene and obviously was cited in this, art, in this letter as being a... The same old, you know, boring Dave Walsh or whatever it said. Um, but in 2003, I did a gig at the St Anne's Square with my own band. It was the only gig I was ever given at the festival. The festival organiser didn't like Fusion, as he put it, and never booked me again. Um, and I feel lucky to have ever got the gig in the first place because I think if he'd really known what the band was, um, they would never have booked me in the first place. But I did four gigs that week, there you go, on that stage with four different bands. And my band was the, the the audience was twice the size of any of the other gigs I did that week and twice the size of any of the other gigs I ever did on that stage there was something happened and uh, and it didn't just involve the music it involved there was a guy called Danny who used to dance at Manchester Jazz Festival he used to dance in front of the stage he'd do it in Martin Fred's he'd do it anywhere wherever he was he'd dance and he had an effect upon people, you know. He had that thing of, like, somebody dancing who's just uninhibited and really good. It's like it's like the same as the musicians on the stage, but it's a different connection to the audience because, you know, there's somebody dancing. And, uh, and I think most people in the audience are closer to connecting with someone who's dancing than they are maybe to the musicians on the stage in relation to being able to join in with what was going on. But when we started playing, uh, the other thing I'll say about Danny is he, he wouldn't dance to music that he didn't want to dance to, if that makes sense. When we started playing, Danny started dancing, you know, and he was dancing and people... And there was just this vibe. More and more people were stopping. They were walking past him. He was in St. Anne's Square in Manchester. More and more people were stopping and watching this guy dancing and watching this music. And at, by the end of the gig, there was there was nearly... I mean, that stage was normally about three, 400. There was, there was nearly 800 people there, maybe a bit more. And we finished, and we, I came off stage, and the stage manager at the time was like, Dave... Have you got any of your CDs? There's all these people who want to buy your album. And I had 10 of these CDs. I made this CD on a CDR thing. With I just made 10 copies. I thought, well, you know, I'll make 10. I'll sell one. And then I'll have nine to send off to promoters or the little kid that will help hold up the bookshelf that's falling down in the front room. You know, whatever, the usual jokes with all the CDs that jazz musicians have under their bed that are basically holding up their entire life. And... Uh, 
I went backstage and there was this massive queue of people and there was people saying, is the music on here the same as that music we've just been listening to? And I was like, yeah, it's the same musicians. It's the same music. Yeah, it's just, I said, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a recorded version of the same music, but it's, um, so it's a bit less, it won't sound quite the same. And they were like, yeah, I want a copy. And there was people just grabbing them out of my hand and giving me 10 pounds. And the 10 CDs I had were gone in literally 10 seconds. And then there was all these other people saying, Oh, have you got any? And I was like, I'm really sorry, but I can, if you want to give me your name and address um, and you want to give me a check or you want to, whatever, I can, I can post one to you or whatever. And, and, uh, and it was like, if I'd had a hundred CDs, I'd have sold them all. And I was like, what are you doing with your life, Dave? You're nowhere. This is like, you've got, you've got no idea what's going on. Cause I was gigging so much at that time. I was really not, paying any attention to that kind of thing i was just going from one day to the next and it was like it was so sad it was just another day for me you know and i think like all the guys in the band over over time they they kind of sense that you know they had they kind of lost faith a bit in uh and 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 as and as the band went on and i kind of was retreating more into the studio because i was just getting more and more into the thing of like trying to uh get sound together and we we had a particularly low point as a band. When this is when the band kind of really fell apart. The band had gone through into its final iterance before I got. I by the way, I got, I got kind of. I left my own band and it carried on without me for a while. I believe. I don't know, but I believe they still rehearse without me with a, with a different drummer. And uh, I think they're still playing some of my tunes. I'm not entirely sure. I've never asked Pete about it because it's a bit weird, a bit awkward. But um, I mean, it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's just music, isn't it? And I'm glad people were playing my music, but. Um, this final kind of version of my band had a great guitarist called Nick Meller in it, brilliant guitarist and a great guy, and he's he's a really good producer and stuff. And uh, anyway, there was a tune that Pete wrote, great tune called "The Story of Us." And I really love this tune, and I did a load of string arranging on it, and and um, I kind of I spent ages on this thing, and I sent it out to everybody on this was the earlier days of email but it was on you know mp3 encoding was happening so you could send stuff on email and and i got a kind of wholly mainly negative response to it because their their thing was well we're never going to be able to play this live are we you know what are you doing you know and it was clear that all the, the music that i was working on was all going in that direction so if you listen to that storyboard thing a lot of that music on the storyboard album on the on the Bandcamp thing if you want to listen to it all the drums and some of the other bits of the music and the bass on one of the tunes, on, on a couple of the tunes, was re-recorded by Richard Hammond um, for, for various different reasons. Uh, it was just convenient at the time. Uh, not because Richard was playing the parts any better than Ollie did, originally did. There was some problems with the original recording of the bass and... Uh, and then Rich was just, we were, you know, we were playing a lot around 2010. And that was when a lot of it was re-recorded, around 2009, 2010, just before I started working with Tom McRae. And that was the next thing that happened. I started doing that gig. Um, we did quite a lot, you know, in, the, in, in 2010 and 11, we did quite a lot. And then we didn't do a bit, we did the album in 2012 and nothing happened until 2015. But by that time, I was... You know, I was like, I'm not, I'm no good at this thing. And then I, having worked with Tom and and 
the people that work around Tom, um, like Ollie Cunningham particularly, just realising what was involved in really putting a project together and having that kind of time. I just realised that I was too much of a side person, you know, just Sideman Dave, just going from gig to gig, just uh, giving it your best in the moment, but having very little to show for it, you know. And um, I'd had a bit of a crisis in 2005 about that. I did a lot of gigs in 2005 and I had literally nothing to show anybody for it. There was, I had no money because I didn't earn any money. It was, I was earning so little money. And, um, and I had no recordings. I hadn't recorded anything really. So it was just a weird time. And um, anyway, all that kind of stuff has been a bit of a barrier for me, you know. And in 2006, I got my job at Leeds and started doing more teaching thing and then sort of changed the sort of types of gigs I was doing. Started working with Tom in 2010 and that kind of relationship went on for four, five, six years, you know, gigging-wise and then, you know, and continued with a couple of other projects. But <clears throat> essentially, took up a lot of the the the, the 2010s to 2020, up to COVID, really, that kind of period. And uh, there was supposed to be, um, uh, there was a thing that didn't happen because of COVID with Tom, which is a shame, but I can't talk about that, but it's a real shame. And uh, and then we kind of arrived at this moment now where I'm like, it's time to put a band together, you know. And the thing that I wanted to do this year, 2023, because as you know, it's my 40-year anniversary, which I've talked about before, which is kind of all irrelevant, really, anniversaries this and nonsense that. You know, I think half my problem is always been attached to these, you know, timeline things. It kind of holds your head in certain places and stops you moving forward maybe sometimes. You know, we kind of hold on to a lot of the past. And I have this kind of terrible memory for, like, like I have a very good memory for things from a long time ago and can quite lucidly, as you've been listening to in this episode, kind of recount these things that happened a long, long time ago. A lot of stuff I was talking about, you know, is that it was mid-90s stuff, you know, which is like, which is a while ago, which is probably before some of the people listening to its time on this planet, you know. But anyway, it's just, it's all timeline, isn't it? But moving forward, um, I decided this year I wanted to make some albums, and so I'm determined to make at least one. And, you know, having a, having a realistic idea of how much it takes to get it together is is one thing. And uh, I just started to not have a ridiculously over-ambitious kind of um, project and not have an over-ridiculous idea of whatever something's going to be. And I was just going to start very simply. So the kind of process was very easy. You know, I'd found some couple of people I wanted to work with and do a specific thing, which is a jazz thing. Now, in the UK at the moment, jazz is interesting, shall we say. Um, and there's a there seems to be a kind of push uh, with the music that's uh, only, the, it's just a music thing, but there's a lot of promoters and, and jazz initiatives in the UK and, and uh, like organisations where you can get help through and funding through and things, which don't, to me, and to lots of my peers from lots of different backgrounds and lots of different musical backgrounds, but you know, all kind of connected to jazz and, but that don't feel to me like they're really um, celebrating or supporting uh, things that are connected to the canon of the tradition of this music. 
and respecting i'm going to be a bit more outspoken actually respecting the traditions of this music it's um i you know I, i'm it's 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 hard music and it's got a heritage and um that heritage is um you know i read blues people uh this year um leroy jones book um and uh that's a difficult read and if you're into the history of uh, this music jazz music uh, i recommend you read that book if you haven't read that book i recommend it puts things into a perspective which i didn't have before reading that book uh, they were in a perspective which was which had a, an awareness or under, sort of understanding of what's in the book but they didn't have a they didn't really have a um a timeline and solid perspective on and, and, and a real understanding of the history of um of the timeline of slavery in in the, just in north america you know and that's just one very small area of uh, of slavery but um it was a profound it's been a profound thing for me but just thinking as someone that's um involved in this music i'm trying to play this music and playing the blues and and playing swing music and then playing bebop and and then someone who's played you know freedom music bit of freedom music as well and someone who's played hard bop and someone who's played post bop and someone who's played fusion and and all these different things and blah 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 you know this music's all got this canon and lineage which is connected to this um great tradition that's coming out of a um that's come out of a profound suffering in humanity you know and i'm really not happy with um the way in which that feels like it's being pushed aside by um by a very small number of people and it feels like it's not music for everybody anymore um and so one of one of the things is that you know I love playing swing music, and so this year I wanted to do something which, in the core of it, has that thing has swing and is is playing in that way, is is celebrating that kind of harmonic canon, as well. But anyway, it's you know I think it's um, I think it's important to talk about these things because um, uh, I think that something's getting lost for me something's getting lost something's getting diluted in in a way which feels like it's you know there's a lot of things in in my view that are not great about it and there's a few of us that feel that way there's a few of us in you know in education there's a few of us in the music and um and there's a few promoters that feel like this as well you know it's not it, it's surprising surprising places where people feel like this and it's very, it's quite heartwarming because i was beginning to feel a little bit uh not not amongst my kind of peers of musicians but a little bit as a kind of person who's going to go out there and try and hustle for gigs i was starting to feel a little bit isolated but you know to my joy a few weeks ago so we did this little initial recording with the trio and it was just we got we went up somewhere found a, a sort of place that was collectively geographically easy to get to we um we chose we were going to do a rehearsal and we just decided to set a couple of cameras up which we did and we focused more on the music and the rehearsing than the filming but we did get some stuff filmed we got four tunes done and we recorded them you know with a couple of mics and stuff nothing special but we needed i needed some stuff 
to just to, to basically send to promoters or at least persuade promoters it was a real project because the the promise was always that this thing was going to be we're going to make an album later in the year you know so anyway got that together got on the phone and um and basically got a week and a half of gigs in about two and a half hours you know still looking to fill a couple of gaps and still dealing with you know some promoters are odd they just have this vibe of like you know when they want something off you they're they're hassling you because you know but when you're trying to get just even a date or even a confirmation of a date it can be very, very tricky. You've got to be super patient. So, that, you know, if, you, if you're so... What I'm saying is if you're someone's getting into this thing and you're starting your own band up and you whatever, and, you know, I feel very lucky because I can get on the phone or email a lot of promoters in the north of England and they all know me because I've played at those venues with lots of different people. And so that is very helpful and has been very helpful. I got I got eight gigs in two and a half hours because of just being able to send email and get on the phone to specific people. And then I've got we've got a few more gigs in the new year, uh, again, using the same thing. They're, they're a little bit slower, but it's using the same kind of contacts and just, you know, in the same kind of way. But the ambition for me is, one, is to make an album. Two, is to do a, a reasonably good professional video um it may be when we're recording but i don't we've got such a tight schedule with the recording i'll talk to you about that in a minute about the kind of plans for that and and the idea behind that because the idea behind that in my head <coughs> having read i also read art taylor notes and tones i got to the end of that this um this year as well because as you probably this this is the year of the reader to me in the words of bill hicks we got ourselves a reader um and uh, the question what are you reading for and if you know that story then uh, you'll know why i'm laughing if you don't i suggest you go and find bill hicks relentless and that find that little segment is absolutely hilarious but she asks him what are you reading for <laughs> not what are you reading <laughs> anyway he questions why he's reading blah 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 but um this year for me is the year of becoming a reader i've started reading books and i've been enjoying it I've never enjoyed reading books before i found it very very hard and, and i've had this very bizarre thing has happened this year i've suddenly found it my mother my late mother and my late father were great readers they read all the time my brother has always been a reader my brother was reading all sorts of books when he was like eight you know he was my brother was very into kind of war history and things like a bit like because my grandfather was a was a sergeant in World War Two and stuff, so he was kind of always fascinated and so he was always reading books and I was I was just found it's just like I'd start reading and my brain would be gone, you know. And um we are all wired differently, but something's happened. I've found this this thing of being able to read so you know it's been been nice to read so i read art the art taylor notes and tones and there's stuff in there art blakey talks about how quickly they had to record stuff but then there's the you know if you watch the pat Metheny interview about uh on rick beato if you, i recommend that's a great interview he talks about recording bright size life and the whole thing with those albums a lot of those albums is, is they're recorded in two days you know and so um 
this is what I'm talking about, the filming thing, is the, it's not to be over-ambitious and say, OK, we're going to go in the studio, it's got a great setting, so we're going to like, get somebody in filming as well as, you know, trying to make a fucking record, pardon my English, but it's like, that ain't going to happen, you know, because if you've got to try and make an album, I mean, we're, so the, the the plan for us is in... in um, in August, going down to um, Owen's place, Studio WZ, and I've been talking with Owen for quite a long time on and off about recording a jazz album there. But I wanted to make an album with him, engineering. It's been something that I've wanted to do since I've met him, since my, the first conversation I had with him about drums. And so that's like a, you know, that's a that's a, a realistic goal this year and a dream come true for me. And I was prepared to underwrite it financially as well which is important you think about those things you know and you have those conversations with your bandmates and i was always very open with the guys and said look you know doesn't matter if people haven't can't afford to pay anything doesn't matter i'm gonna you know i'm gonna save some money up and i'm gonna underwrite it but we're gonna do it super quick so it's gonna take organizing on the front side you know and um and so that was the conversation and then we booked in august to go down there uh an afternoon setup and then two days in the studio um and it's recording for a day and a half and then and mixing on the fly and basically come into the afternoon of the second day and just be mixing final mixing and exporting finished mixes not mastered but finished and that's it two days make an album in two days and it takes a whole lot of procrastination out of it <clears throat> It's the opposite of everything I've ever done recording in my whole life before, me spending hours and hours and hours. I mean, up here, you know, on Ben's projects, I mean, we, you know, when we did, when I recorded, when I was writing stuff for him, I, you know, when we, even the first tune I worked on of his, which was a cover, the Terence Martin tune, Sleeper on a Westbound Train, when I started working on that track, you know, it was like a thing of, he said, oh, I want some pads on it, you know, and um, and some other bits and bobs. And what I sent him was this kind of, <clears throat> I put some drums on it, some synth bass, so just, just so there was a bass part. I put some strings and pads on it. And then there was backing vocals and all kinds of things. And it was just, you know, that was like, version one of about 50 and and it was hours and hours of time you know and part of, you know part of you may think what the hell are you spending all that time for when you could have been spending the time on whatever but for me i wrote this thing down in my notes trying to bring us all together into one semblance of something that means anything is the thing about process you know i talk um with a great friend of mine, Alex Holliday, who works at college with me, and I bought a preamp of him recently, and we're talking about production, and he says, you know, the thing, the main thing you need to get is to have a process, you know, is have a process of working. And I, that's what I'm still finding for myself when I'm working on my own in the studio. But I wanted to definitely not have any of that going on when we recorded this trio. I wanted it to be all about the playing. And so a lot of the thing I've been doing, you know, practicing, that thing I was playing... Uh, right at the top of this, that coordination exercise. I've been working on those. Those are John Riley exercises that he gave me. The crotchet triplets in the off off beat in the left foot, 
and then you just fill the gaps in with the left and left hand and the right foot and you can play any versions of paradiddles or just single alternating or whatever and you just take those stick control patterns but part of my preparation is about preparing to be um, on the top game as a player both in relation to the sort of the what I call the, the kind of functional or nuts and bolts side of my playing <clears throat> but there's also the thing of of also being on top of the um the parts you know i mean it's funny because we're in this kind of uh, period now uh at, at, um, at work where all of our students like all my drum students um my third years all the first and second years have done their end year recitals, but the third year ones start next week and the drum ones are the week after, 21st, 22nd, I think. And the thing I ask all my students every year who are third years, when they talk about the music that they're going to play, the thing I say to them all is, can you play me the quintessential version of the drum part you're going to play on that tune you've just said? And if they can't do that, I just say to them, you're not prepared, you know, because... If you're playing like, if they're just playing some standards and just leaving it all in the lap of the gods, that's not a great idea. That's a disaster. If you're Keith Jarrett and Gijonette and Big Peacock, or if you're, you know, Ahmed Jamal, Bernard Fournier, etc., etc., just whoever, superstar of jazz, great things are going to happen whenever you play music. If you're Dave Walsh, playing with a piano trio and you're just picking up some tunes and you're going out and doing, you know, like a a 40-minute set of something that really matters. Having that little level of preparation is in relation to programming and thinking specifically about the music that you're playing and how you're going to, the architecture of that music and what parts you're going to, how you're going to approach those music and what you're going to solo on and how you're going to solo on those tunes. You know, we're not just operating on the function. This is what I'm trying to say. That, that That's the functional side of... And my life has been spent mostly on the functional side of playing. Not as a function musician, but just going and turning up to gigs and just playing, you know, in the music that's happening in the moment with, without much thought. And, and, and as a result of that, sadly, you know, my expectation a lot of the time with those gigs is quite low and, and rightfully should be in a way. But magic does happen. But you can't leave that to chance, you know, in those important situations. And I don't think you should when you record. And so the preparation for recording is, you know, we're, we're going gonna to rehearse again. And we've got quite a lot of music. We're going to come distill the musical decisions to a few choice um, pieces and, and play some um, play quite a lot of original music as well. And the original music thing obviously really helps because then you you know you really have to do think about you know it's not just playing swing drums or a bossa nova or something you know you're thinking more about parts and what have you but it's that thing of like it's very very easy at the moment with jazz and this kind of music because of social media and because of all these the pressures of these different things that are going on from promoters and and uh, and the like. But social media has got more to do with it than that side of thing. This is a slightly, slightly different thing. But it's about that thing of feeling like what you do needs to be trendy. You know, like 
not only is the music that you're playing got to be on trend, but also the way you're playing that music has got to be like hip, like the latest hip dude from, you know, whatever, playing whatever. And um, I think a lot of young players have got to be careful of that at the moment because you're creating a rod for your own back there. You know, you're creating like an environment where creativity and the ability to be in the moment, really in the moment, is not something that's um, that you're able to explore, you know, allowing things to happen, allowing things to unfold and making things happen. But you can certainly be prepared and have springboards for that, you know. And so the lot of the thing I talk about with students is about that. It's about having things like having a kind of quintessential way of playing that music together, but having enough stuff on the side so vocabulary coordination technique all these things technique coordination well, they're all the same thing but having that flexibility as a player to not just go through this kind of recycled version of the same thing every time have the ability to be able to you know break it up or or play with it in inverted commas you know um so it's been careful about that and it, and it's like a question people say well, you know what you make an album for it's like the bill hicks thing you know well one because i just want to play music with these people and want it documented it's just like it's a thing it happened and it sounds like this and we're proud of it there you go and um you know that's the basis of all the things that i've ever recorded um whether they've turned out like that is another thing um, and sadly, there's very few jazz albums that I've played on. No offence to anybody um, who's listening who's part of those albums. Um, there's very few of them that I'd ever want to play to anybody. Most of that is nothing to do with the playing or the other players, of course. Most of it's to do with how it was recorded. Because I have a bit of a beef, you know, with a lot of um, jazz musicians. One thing I learned from... The, um, working on pop projects or or you know rock or folk or, or pro projects away from jazz is about when people book studios and the way they record is they take their time and they set the premise for the recording so that it has a certain um, amount of flexibility in the material that's recorded you know they're able to use that and a lot of the jazz recordings I've done I've never really been happy with the drum sound you know so <clears throat> it means I don't want to play anybody that thing because I don't want anyone to hear that sound. I don't want to hear that sound. I wouldn't play it to myself, you know. And so there's a there's a very small number of albums and they're all they're all albums that I've been more involved with recently because I've tended to, you know, make decisions recently that um that are better for me and they're also I'm saying to the people I'm working with let's not record in that way. If you record the drums like that in the room with also with another mic on an instrument or two other instruments, you're never going to be able to mix the album on any of those instruments to sound other than a roomy recording. And unless you're in a phenomenally good room with well-placed mics, and I wish we'd recorded in that way, you know, because if we'd done it that way, I think it would have sounded better because we'd have played differently. When you when I'm close mic'd, I play differently than when I'm mic'd ambiently you know I, I i do here when i play in the room here 
I do when I'm playing live. I, it's just a different thing. You have a different mindset. You, you, you know where the detail is being picked up from, you know. And um, if I had my way, all microphones would be set up next to just behind my ears, you know, as close to my ears as they could get because that's the thing I hear. But that's that's that doesn't happen. So it's it's like a sort of like a farcical thing to sort of say, really. You know, that's not how anybody records. And when you go into situations, producers and engineers record in the way they feel best for their setup. So you 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 know you bow to that and you work within that thing. So when I'm if I'm recording, um, when I'm recording here, you know, like how differently the snare drum sounds to me in here in the room just next to me here then when I listen to it through these speakers that are next to me it's incredible the difference you know gladly it sounds better when it's come out of the speakers because of what's the processing that's gone on you know and the preamp it's gone through and what I'm doing inside logic and how I'm using the compression and the EQ and and the um and the orgs tracks that I'm using all those different things they're all kind of a they're all a process aren't they you know and so there's that thing of preparing for the recording, getting the right material, rehearsing it, obviously, and then coming down to a collective decision of sort of saying, this is our sound. We found our sound. What can, we, what can we, we record to best represent that sound? And then and then you've arrived at the main thing, haven't you? You've arrived at the music, which is a beautiful thing. You know, this is the music. This is the music that we're going to record together. This is the music that is going to become our sound. And then it transcends all that bullshit all the bullshit of trendy and all that thing. The only thing you can ever do, and it's purely by luck. I think some people actually maybe are more strategic than this, but I think generally the thing you can do more by luck is set a trend, you know. And and people do do that all the time. Obviously, music's, you know, doing that. And, and there's a lot of record company manipulation involved in that as well, though. There are some genuinely... There are, I think, some A&R people still uh, scout about and are a bit more connected to the roots of certain styles of music and see trends coming and jump on it before they become the next big thing. Um, but social media's changed all of that. It's changed it all. I don't quite know where it's all going in a way, that side of things. you know. And it's like the AI thing. You know, people talk about AI being the end of humanity and all that stuff, and it's like, well, okay, the simple analogy for me is if you were sat in a room and you had two things in front of you, both that were phenomenal, you had a human being that was a phenomenal musician, and you had a computer which had this incredible AI thing which is 50 years into the future of now and has sussed out all possible musical nuance in every single sensibility that we can ever imagine. And you're listening to the person or the computer. Which one are you going to want to watch, you know? I think you're probably going to want to watch the person. I think you're always going to want to watch the person, aren't you? Because it's just it doesn't become about what's best then. It becomes about what moves you, you know? And you can listen to some of the most crumbly, most vulnerable, the most naive, the most technically devoid music ever. And it can be the most beautiful, moving thing you've ever heard in your life, you know. 
And you can also listen to, you know, I also listen to what people might describe as quite banal pop music that's got two chords. And I, and I still find it moving because there's something about the sound of the chords and the way in which the production is just the way it's mixed and what's in what's going on in the atmospheres of the music, which really connects to a sound that I'm that I like. You know, it's so complicated, it's so nuanced that you know, I, I just think humans we're always going to find the nuance. Um, and so, no, I don't know whether the social media. I just don't see where the social media thing is going to go in that respect. I, I don't see. I just don't see where where it's going to lead. You know, it's a very new thing to us all, isn't it? It's still, it's still really new and still really amazing and new and wow and this, that, and the other. But actually, it's not. You know, music's been around a long, long time, and uh, I think people that are involved in social media and, and and who are famous in social media because they they believe so much of their own hype and and uh, love the sound of their own voice so much. I think they think they've kind of invented it all and and it's like don't be that naive you know don't be that silly no chance you haven't invented music you know music's um it's so nuanced and so wide that it's that transcends all of us you know so so yeah maybe you become a trendsetter but it just means that once you get to the music and the truth of that thing you're then just you know you're sharing who you are and as a collective as a people a collection of people together hopefully that thing has, has a cohesive vibe to it you know as a, something that connects with people and so then the, and then the thing of that is you take it out you make an album and you go and get some gigs which we which we have so we kind of done it the wrong way around in a way but i wanted to get some gigs together to have an album to go and take out and uh, share with people and sell to people you know and people could take home with them take home a really good representation of what they've heard on the gig you know and have something that I'd be proud of that I play to anybody, um, any musician on any level, you know, and say, you know, this is this is our thing, you know, play it to Herbie Hancock or, you know, whoever, Brian Blade or somebody, you know, blah blah blah. Um, so that's kind of it, really. That was very rambly. Sorry about that, but it's um, it's it's all about kind of distilling things down to a process and getting to a point where you know the where everybody feels like they're on the same page and um running your own projects well you know if you if you're going to run your own project i wish you luck and i wish you great patience because there's so many weird subtle things that you have to be mindful of and aware of um you know because when you're running projects with people, it's people, you know. And what was one of the great mistakes I made? The other great mistake, by the way, in 2003, which I, I mentioned, there was two things. The other one was the website thing. And this is where I really messed up, you know. And um, and I understand quite a lot more about it now because my partner, she has an online business and she's done a lot of, she's done a lot of kind of studying what goes on in the background of... Um, of selling an online business and you have to detach your love of the subject matter from the other part of it in order to really understand it and uh, I understand about half a percent but I I now see the great opportunity I missed 
um, when I had this website and I made these videos that were terrible quality, but they were interesting videos. And again, they were all like first takey. They had like a first takey kind of energy on them. They had a naivety about them that was kind of, that was nice and an honesty about them, which was nice, which I've never been able to recapture since. And, um, and I used to get a lot of traffic through the website because I was listed on some quite big drum sites. Drummer World, I was listed on Drummer World for a while. Um, Bernard, I can't remember his surname. The guy ran that website, recommended my website on a wish list, um, which was very, very nice. There was a big site called Drumbum. Um, which was a huge resource site. It might still be around. I don't know whether it's still around, but a lot of those things have gone now. But I was listed on that under the advanced techniques section, which is living the dream, isn't it? You know, if you're going to be under any, you either want to be under groove or advanced techniques, you know. And I was under that because of a couple of videos I made on there were about the um, one-handed triplet and one-handed sixteenth note thing. And um, and there was not a lot of stuff around about that at the time because you you know, you got to think it's two thousand and three. This is two thousand and three, two thousand and two, two thousand and four. It was a different time than it is now. Now there's you can you can find that stuff on YouTube in one second, you know. But I was getting you know, hundred two hundred hits a day on this website, which is not a lot of traffic, but it was. You know, there was enough, if I'd had anything about me and understood anything about the business side of it, I could have um, solidified that platform. I could have built upon it in a, in a, in a more strategic way. And I could have basically got the, um, the affiliates thing, the affiliate link thing going on, the advertising thing going on in the background and would have, could have been making a living out of the traffic because that's what people do, don't they? You know, especially the affiliate link thing. I could have, if I'd had, had it all about me, I'd have had certain things on there. And they would have probably all been partners, partnerships with people that I wanted to work with, you know, um, things like, you know, BR and the, the, the Istanbul thing could have been something. I mean, the, these companies ultimately don't need you really because um, they're huge. I mean, I was talking with, with Barry Race about Didario UK, you know, and um, a company I'm, I'm connected to. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Didario educator. I, uh, I have an arrangement with them in the UK, but Didario UK is now Dario Europe, you know, and it's just like, so that company's gone from being big to being enormous. Um, and you kind of quickly realise, you know, a company that the CEO, I used to know the CEO of Dario UK and now <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't really know, uh, don't really know him at all now. Because it just becomes huge, doesn't it? You just suddenly become a min a, a beyond the minnow in a, in an ocean, <laughs> um, very quickly. So, it's having kind of realistic things. But at the time, I could, you know, if I'd had anything about me and understood anything about the website side of things, I could have uh, I could have just set that all up in a really a nice solid platform. I had some nice affiliate links and and um, and done and made some nice resources on there and bits and bobs of things and had a healthy amount of traffic partnered with some more strategic websites and then moved that all over onto the new social media platforms as they came along you know and um it would have been um, probably a reasonably decent business um you know whereas now i'm still thinking about because one of the other things i'm still thinking about doing 
is this uh, I teach from this I have this kind of joke this pamphlet thing I teach from at, at uh, where I work and um, at Leeds Conservatoire and I and it's 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 a very um, the the subject matter in the book is just a simple thing of going through uh, getting into the, the jazz sound and learning to sort of a balance of sound within basic coordination patterns and then learning to phrase, play into certain points of the music, which is a very common thing within, you know, jazz uh, soloing vocabulary within, um, you know, bebop particularly, you know, if you, if you listen to kind of rhythm changes music and that kind of thing, those kind of melodies, playing... Uh, around those melodic structures he's playing in and out of gravity points in the music I don't want to get into all this it's all about a kind of very specific thing but the the second the second half of the first chapter is about that and then and then the next thing is some more kind of advanced coordination things which start to get into a more contemporary sound all kind of based around swing and jazz playing ride cymbal and snare and bass drum and hi-hat kind of playing but and then there's a style section um there's a small thing about the flam which i'm a bit obsessed with which is also in my other book which you can buy off google books called rudiment foundations which is five pounds you can still that's for sale as a pdf um but if you study at least conservatory you get a free copy of that if you study with me because i have hard copies of it now um but uh but it's not for sale as a hard copy but anyway the thing i've always wanted to do is make a video series which takes you through that book which is me playing through that book and all of some sort of things that are connected to it. Because the book doesn't really, like it's not a book you can sell because without me teaching it, it's not really, you know, it's not something that, and there's loads of great teachers at college, you know, really great drum teaching, great drummers, but they, they wouldn't be able to teach either. They do their own thing. It's very much a thing that I've kind of come up with. And it's a system which, um, which helps people, you know, it definitely helps people, gets people focused on finding their sound and controlling the instrument in a new way. And so I've, that's another thing that I still sit down and and have this kind of idea of how would I would how would I do it? And it had to look a certain way and be recorded a certain way. So that's something that's in the pipeline and maybe something that will um, kind of happen maybe next year and become part of the Drums in a Shed brand thing, the website thing, you know, which... Um, uh, because I think it's like, you know, like the podcast like an archive. An archive is a, is a legacy of sorts, isn't it? You know, um, you know whether anybody looks in the archive is irrelevant. It's just it's there and it's there for good. And um, so, you know, anything that I always say on these podcasts, I always try and make sure it's something that I say that I, that I really mean, you know. And like when I was talking about the this thing about UK jazz at the moment and um, the way it feels like it's kind of losing its way a little bit, um, I'm very mindful about sharing those thoughts in this platform, but I do feel very strongly about that. And if anybody wants to have a conversation about it, they can, you know, and... Um, and it's it's about the music. It's not about anything else. It's not about it's not about gender. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about I inclusivity. It's uh, all those things uh, are what I feel it's creating a barrier for those things. Um, but it's it's about the music. It's about the heritage of the music, you know, and about and about a, a, a sort of basic 
you know understanding of what the music is um and i don't think other genres of music would put up with it you know uh i've had very you know some links to the folk scene and you, you know folk music has a great history about it and you respect that history <laughs> however you're involved in folk music i mean folk music really you know kind of almost is all is is also world, world music is the, the the music of of where people are from you know so it has great kind of uh you know jazz is folk music in a way and and you know whatever but it's just you you don't walk into that forum and start sort of saying that this other thing is that it's it's not respectful you know and so that's what I'm that's what I'm kind of saying. So I'm I'm very mindful about what I say on these podcasts and 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 this in this archive. And it's something that I feel I'm not going to regret saying in ten years, you know. Um, and so the archive is that that kind of thing of of, of archive, you know, of um, whether anybody dips into the archive. That's a, that's another thing. But but the idea of kind of um, legacy. Don't really like that word. I'm not sure whether I like that word. That's funny connotations. But just, you know, if you have an idea about how you want to help people to get into something and it's a and it's a thing that you use and it seems to work and people respond well to it, it dies with you, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> if you drop dead, it's gone. So the idea with the videos was to was to was to also archive it as well as like this is archiving it i've talked a lot about the concepts in this thing but not actually there's no practical examples of sharing it you know walking the walk as they talk it I, I, i've very always wanted to make the videos because i've wanted uh, i've got a lot of time for people you watch people who make these videos demonstrating things and uh, it's one of the things why why i you know i um wanted to have the lessons with john riley because he has this way of just playing this stuff that's very very hard and it's like it's like he's walking the walk of it you know he's not just concept talking about it and pontificating about concepts and stuff he's actually playing the thing and also um ag agonizing playing the thing learning to play the thing you know showing showing where the where the kind of outer limit of where he's at is you know where he's at with it is you know and sharing that moment it's very important i think to share those moments if, if you're someone that's you know you're helping other people come into a situation where they're where they're further down the timeline than you are and they're sort of just trying to find their way and they're a little bit in the dark with it all and they're just, you know, they're seeing the glimpses of light and this, that and the other. And it's it's important to be able to to be able to demonstrate that, but also remind them that there's part of what is happening for them is still within you, you know. We're all we're all um you know, we're all at the kind of um we're all humble to it, is what I'm saying. You know, just because I've got this coordination exercise down or I've got this thing down with, I've got this thing, speed thing down with my hands or this sound thing down or this movement thing down or this style down or whatever. It's just, you know, it's one thing I've got down amongst a billion things which I haven't, you know. 
and and the same for everybody else so um it's kind of so yeah that's always been the thing about make, making those videos is, is also about about that having that kind of moment crystallized you know i can kind of see is that thing you can see how it is in your head but it would have to be filmed in a certain way and it would take ages as well and having the time to do it and that's where I, that's the thing i mostly really struggle with i don't want to i don't want to record something over three months and go through like four different waist sizes and different hairstyles which i don't obviously have um and um whatever else <laughs> lose my teeth or something you know um i don't i, I would i would want to be on my a game as a player to be able to get it all recorded in a week you know and that would mean kind of going away somewhere and retreating and you know and part of the thing of of being be living alone again maybe you know for quite a lot of the next 12 months beyond september there's part of me that's thinking well that that in a way as an opportunity you know um there's an opportunity in that maybe to do to do this it's maybe that 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 gives me the time or the chance to do it so we'll see anyway i'm just wittering on now so i don't i'm just filling it's an hour blooming heck one hour and 40 don't think it's quite that but anyway i apologize for how long this has been and it's been a rambly pile of nonsense and i hope i haven't offended anybody um i don't mean to but i do have some opinions of my own i have my own thoughts which are mine and mine alone and don't represent anybody else and um that's my right to do that so i can say what i like thank you very much um and so i'll see you again next time thanks for listening bye for now <laughs>